Hey, everybody, how you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. It is episode number 39. Today is Tuesday, March 26, 2019. And boy, we got a lot to talk about today. There's you know so much is going on in the news. You know, the Mueller report just came out, and um, you know we got the 2020 candidates are all jockeying for position, and and so yeah, just a whole bunch of things that I just really wanted to share as it pertains to the news and some of the topics that are going on. Uh, so you know, like we said, this this podcast is all about life, liberty. And the pursuit of happiness. And, you know, sometimes we talk about life and we've been doing that lately with our podcasts about journaling and about believing in yourself, you know, focusing on your own life and living the best life you possibly can. Sometimes we talk about pursuit of happiness, and that's when we're interviewing our guests and discussing the things that they do that make them happy and how they pursue their own happiness. Uh, but other times we talk about liberty, and today we're going to talk about liberty when we talk about you know some of the, the issues that are in the news, local politics, talking about Trump and Bernie Sanders. With All these things have a relationship with liberty and really giving ourselves the individual freedom or lack of freedom to live our lives the way we see fit. And so that's really, that's kind of the lens that I like to look at the current issues. And we're going to kind of go through a bunch of those today. But, but before we do, hey, thanks for watching. If you're watching on YouTube, listening on Spotify, on iTunes, on Stitcher, thank you for listening. You know, I just ask you, please share this with a friend. Let them know about the John Riley Project. We're trying to build our audience. If you're a first-time listener, first-time viewer, thank you for joining us. We hope this is valuable to you. We hope you enjoy it. We hope you're so enthusiastic about it that you can't help but tell other people. That's If I'm doing my job effectively, that's the kind of end result we're hoping to get. So um, just a little bit about a little personal anecdote. Over the weekend, uh, my wife and I, we were up in San Luis Obispo for MTS. This is the March Triathlon Series. Uh, you know, my daughter is on the Cal Poly Triathlon team, and they host this big event um, up there in San Luis Obispo every March. So my wife and I, we joined uh, my daughter, and we helped her out. She was in charge of registering, you know, almost 500 triathletes for this event. And Saturday, we spent the whole day in a triathlon store in San Luis Obispo, um, helping register, you know, hundreds and hundreds of these athletes that came pouring in from UC Davis, from Berkeley, from Stanford, from UCLA, USC, UC Santa Barbara, UC San Diego, San Diego State, Chico State. I mean, Cal State Channel Islands. There were college athletes from all over California that came to this event. There were high school athletes. There were adults um, that were competing in this triathlon in San Luis Obispo. It was a great event. So, boy, Saturday we were working in the in the sporting goods store literally all day organizing all these packets and getting everything these athletes need. And then on Sunday morning, we were up at 3.30 in the morning, uh, got out to Lake Lopez. It was pitch dark and we were setting up you know, canopies and tables and getting the same day registration up and organized. And then I was, um, I had the honor of being the announcer for this event, which I had a great fun doing it. I always love announcing. Um, it's part of the reason why I'm kind of doing this podcast too. It's uh, just a way for me to share my own voice, my own thoughts on things. And and so I was the the PA announcer for, for the, uh, the Cal Poly March Triathlon Series um, on Sunday and also do some announcing for Poway High Baseball, which I enjoy. 
enjoy doing. So I'll be over at um, at Poway High School on Thursday, uh, being the PA announcer there, and just having fun exploring that. So I've had a great weekend. Got back Sunday real late, probably well not that late, but about eight o'clock. I mean, it was a full day. Crashed heavy on uh, Sunday night, got some good rest, back at it Monday morning, and then I realized on Monday afternoon I didn't quite fully recover. So I kind of took it easy um, on on Monday afternoon, got another solid night's sleep last night, and now I'm refreshed, I'm energized. The body doesn't fully recover from these weekends like it did when I was in my 20s, but uh, still having fun. And I'm still pursuing my own happiness um, at these events. So having a great time. So anyways, um, uh, before we kind of get into these topics, I just want to throw it out there. You know, um, I've got my own uh, John Riley Project Facebook page. I invite you to join me there, um, invite you to, to follow along in some of the things I'm doing on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm usually posting a lot of um, inspirational messages to try to kind of keep the, the, the John Riley Project brand out there. You know, it's all part of an awareness campaign. And in the John Riley Project Insiders Group, which is a special closed group in Facebook, Facebook, you're all invited to join. Um, you just got to request uh, permission and we'll let you in. Um, I have a lot of bonus content. Some, uh, some of my adventures when I'm out and about, I, I produce these five or 10 second uh, mini podcasts that are in the John Riley Project Insiders Group. So I invite you to join me there. Okay, enough of that. All right. This podcast, I always talk about it. It's it's about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the liberty category, what we're going to get in today is really we look at current news, current events. We look at politics, but really through the lens of individual rights, of personal liberty, personal freedom. Are, are our leaders um, expanding our freedom or are they restricting our freedom? And a big topic in the news today, it, you know, this is obviously the Mueller report came out on Friday. There's been all kinds of of spin that's been going on in the media, and you've got Republicans that are saying no collusion, and you've got Democrats that are saying, well, we, we haven't even seen the report. We only have, you know, the first glimpse of uh, really a summary from our attorney general of the report. And these guys are going back and forth. But the Trump um, you know, administration is feeling empowered. They feel like they've won a victory. Now, we can get into the whole thing with the Mueller report. That's not really my intent. But what I am saying is, is now you can see that they're doubling down. And the whole thing that the Trump administration is always trying to do is to continue to keep their foot on the gas, to create division, to fire up their base and really upset their opponents. And now it's about Obamacare. So now a judge in Texas, um, and I'm not even sure where this judge ranks, but it's probably one of the lower courts, has called for the repeal of Obamacare. And now the Trump administration is backing that plan. And, And what we're seeing now is a lot of the Democrats are suddenly their focus is off the Mueller report to a degree. And now they're saying, see, I told you so. The, the Trump administration wants to take away health care from people in America. They want to take away the pre-existing condition. Um, you know, they've already taken away the mandate. Now they want to take away really the entire thing. They want to remove Obama's legacy. But more importantly, they're trying to say is oh, we knew all along the Republicans want to take away your health care. So and then it just it's so much nonsense with all of this um but it 
but it is really a political move more than anything. I mean, let's be real. What Trump is trying to do is to solidify his base, get keep because he has a very delicate balance. I think he's got about 35 percent of the electorate to support him. And if he just loses any little bit of that, he is going to lose the 2020 election. Now, this abandonment of um, Obamacare, you know, really doubling down now on removing pre-existing conditions. This may turn out to be a bad political move, but it all ultimately depends on what he replaces it with. Now, let's say, for example, that Obamacare is ruled by the courts to be unconstitutional. Now, first of all, the, the courts have already ruled that parts of Obamacare are are constitutional. Um, but let's just, for the sake of discussion, assume that it's removed. Well, President Trump, when he was candidate in 2016, he 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 uh, campaigned on universal health care. He campaigned on the government subsidizing people's health care. He campaigned on having full access. I mean, he really campaigned on a progressive platform to have universal health care that was subsidized by tax dollars that everybody was insured. Now, do you believe him? No, I don't believe him. I mean, he'll, he, he's, he usually will say the sky is blue and the sky is orange. And, and no matter what, he's right, right? He'll, he'll say whatever is necessary to win. And oftentimes in full conflict of previous statements, you never know what he really believes because he only says what's necessary to make him look good in front of that audience. And he was on a 60 Minutes interview in September of 2016, and he campaigned for universal health care. So does that mean that Trump is going to maybe try to remove Obamacare, replace it with universal health care? Maybe. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, honestly, I wouldn't. Um, but uh, I don't think he has the core philosophical disagreement with universal health care um, that people like myself have and a lot of other liberty minded people have, um, you know, but I'm, I'm still always surprised that whenever this discussion of repealing Obamacare comes up, that progressives, liberals get so upset because really Obamacare is a further entrenching of the insurance industry, of insurance corporations in the business of healthcare. And the whole notion of what progressives want to do is they want to extract that corporate influence in healthcare. But ACA, the Affordable Care Act, has done the opposite. It's interesting, by the way, the Affordable Care Act has actually made healthcare less affordable. It's made healthcare overall more expensive. Now, sure, some people have seen decreases in costs, but for the vast majority of people, their rates have gone up. It has made healthcare less affordable. Um, so what what is the solution? Now, I've, I've often thought about this. You know, a lot of people say, well, if you're against Obamacare, and I'm against Obamacare, I have been from day one. I mean, they always say, well, what do you, you just want the existing system the way it was before Obamacare? And of course not. I mean, that's nonsense. Our current healthcare system is a cluster. I mean, I think we can all agree on that. I mean, Prices are outrageous. People don't have full access. Um, the system is rigged um, largely due to government regulations that distort the system and cause prices to go up. Um, the insurance industry just just based on what they do, they insulate people from the true cost of health care. That causes prices to go up. So there are a lot of problems with the health care system before Obamacare was implemented. I mean, heck, we can even go back before, um, you know, before Bush was president in the Clinton era, there were problems with health care. And Bush 
expanded Medicare. <laughs> he provided, um, you know, the prescription drug coverage, which while maybe helped some people, ended up costing tremendously. It added huge burdens financially to the to the um, to prescription drug marketplace. It removed the ability for for um, the government to negotiate um, uh uh, drug prices, which rigged the system further for big pharma, banned the imports of medicines. It was just a mess. So it seems like each so-called fix of healthcare has actually made the situation worse, has caused prices to continue to go up. And, and we see this in a lot of industries where where government has tremendous regulatory power, tremendous influence in power, typically prices go up. And where where we have cases where mark where the government has less influence, prices are lower. I mean, there's a really powerful graph that um, I've seen a lot online where it shows the um, the price increases in certain categories over the last 20 years, and you'll see healthcare prices skyrocketing up, housing prices skyrocketing up, college tuition and books skyrocketing up. And why is that? It's because, in my opinion, because government regulations have so distorted the market to protect certain people's interests, it ends up ranking, uh, cranking up the price for everybody else. Um, and then in other categories where we've seen a, a sharp decline in price, like a classic example are televisions, um, those are areas where the government typically has far less regulatory influence and the marketplace actually works a lot more properly. And that's when we see more innovation and lower prices. So, so people have asked me. They say, "Well, if you if you oppose Obamacare and you don't support single payer, single payer, you don't support socialized medicine, you don't support universal health health care, well, then you must want the previous system." The answer is no. So, what do I support? And I and I, I want to put this out there. Here's a list of innovative things that I think we can do in the healthcare industry to help lower prices and increase personal freedom, increase access to the marketplace, um, and ultimately unrig the system so the corporations haven't gamed the system, haven't tilted the playing field with unfair rules that really line their pockets at the expense of everybody else. So the first thing we should do, in, in my opinion, make all healthcare um, spending 100% tax deductible. That would be a huge win uh, because we would be able to write that off on our taxes. We'd be able to pay less in taxes right away. That would be a, a, a right off the top, a big win for middle class families, no doubt. It would obviously benefit the rich too. And would it benefit some in the lower middle class? Yeah, because the some in the lower middle class do pay um, taxes. So um, that would help reduce their tax burden. That would be a win. What else can be done? We should allow every American to have an un taxed healthcare savings account. Um, and what we mean by that is we can put money into this account and then healthcare expenses can be paid with that money. What this will do is it'll create a more market-oriented system with transparent pricing, with people are paying cash for services rather than having some convoluted insurance scheme calculate prices in a black box and then deliver to you some some number which you don't really even understand how it's computed to tell you what you owe. If we have more of a transparent, open market system we'll, and pay for it with 
with cash dollars that are untaxable will see lower prices. We see this all the time in healthcare that is largely outside the scope of insurance. Like, for example, LASIK surgery. You know, if you want to have your eyes operated on to correct your vision, um, we've seen prices of that that used to be thousands of dollars an eye, $4,000, $5,000 per eye have now been dramatically being lowered in price. And meanwhile, quality has been going up. More doctors are providing LASIK surgery. The quality and the technology has improved. And now the price is like only about $500 an eye. I mean, that's like almost a a 90% decline in prices because it's a competitive market because prices are transparent and because people are shopping with cash. We see it in other cases um, with contact lenses where the price of contacts are incredibly inexpensive. Um, Heck, they sell contact lenses for pennies at Walmart um, and at Costco. So this is a huge win where healthcare um, products, healthcare services um, are being spent uh, by people using cash rather than through the insurance industry. So for routine healthcare needs, like if you just want to have a checkup, get a flu shot, get an x-ray, you know, I mean, these are non-life-threatening situations. We could pay for those with cash. Now, does that mean everybody could afford it? No, but we're going to get through some of these issues and we'll break that down as well. But for the vast majority of the middle class and those above the middle class, They could be paying cash. Prices would go down. Um, What else can we do to lower the price of health care? Well, there's a lot of routine things that doctors will do. They'll prescribe medicine. They'll provide common relief um, to routine health care needs, whether it's the flu, the common cold, fever, et cetera. So why don't we just empower more healthcare professionals to make those assessments for lower grade issues. Like for example, if um, why can't we allow pharmacists, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants to diagnose patients, write prescriptions for common drugs and handle common medical issues? I mean, in the state of California, a nurse can provide an abortion. They can um, do an abortion procedure, but they can't write a prescription for medicine. So I think if we can allow more healthcare professionals uh, provide assistance to individuals um, for more routine matters, then the higher priced um, doctors can be reserved for more of the complex issues. Um, that's going to make healthcare costs a lot less expensive. What else can be done? You know, everyone's in shrieking about the pre-existing um, issue, you know, and, and that's where you have insurance for whatever reason, you lose your insurance, and then you suddenly come down with a serious problem. Maybe you have, I mean, let's take an extreme case, cancer, some, you know, life-threatening issue, and then you need to sign up for insurance. You can't get it because you have a pre-existing condition. That's a legitimate problem, and that's a problem that needs to be solved. But forcing insurance companies to take on people that have a pre-existing condition doesn't make sense because it ends up, again, it's, it's like having insurance, getting insurance for your house after it burns down. That's essentially what it is because insurance ultimately is not just a channel to pay for health care. Insurance is a risk management tool. It's a, it's a tool to help you manage those cases of risk. So what we should look for is an insurance system that is portable, that stays with you. No matter if you leave an employer or you're laid off or you quit a job or your, if your company goes out of business, if any sort of dis- 
disruption in your career takes place, you shouldn't lose your health care insurance. So I'm all in favor of having health care be like auto insurance or life insurance. It just travels with you. It's not dependent upon who you work for. Um, so if we can disconnect insurance from employment, then people can have health care insurance for the vast majority of their lives. And so the pre-existing condition issue is dramatically minimized. Um, so, but, but because with Obamacare, we're further entrenching insurance into the, the, the career model, forcing companies to insure people, which further entrenches that condition of getting health care from your employer. We need to be doing the opposite of that. Um, and if we do, we can largely knock down this pre-existing condition situation and minimize it greatly. It won't be eliminated because people still will you know, lose their insurance for other reasons. They may stop paying for it, for example. Um, but the vast majority of people that find themselves in this pre-existing pickle is because they used to have insurance and then they lost it because of some disruption in their career. So let's disconnect those two and make insurance a lot more affordable. How about um, changing the licensing laws that we can allow places like you know, Costco, Walmart, Rite Aid, CVS, you know, all the uh, places where you can buy drugs, um, your drug stores, why can't we allow them to have baseline low-level medical clinic services? And again, they would be able to provide more access to more people at a lower cost. We see this to a degree now where you can get flu shots at um, a lot of um, places like CVS or Rite Aid. But why not be able to provide um, healthcare remedies for the flu, for you know fevers, and for other kind of more so-called routine healthcare needs? That would be a big win. And we can have more jobs that would be available at those places. Again, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, physician assistants can provide that level of healthcare for individuals. Um, Here's another classic one, and it's this notion of being able to buy health care across state lines. I mean, it is kind of silly that if you live in one state and there's health care provided, health care insurance provided in a different state, that you can't buy it. I mean, everything else in the United States or most everything else, you can buy out of state. But with health care insurance, you can't. And that's largely because of government regulatory rules. So if we're able to buy health insurance in other states, that's going to create a more competitive marketplace that will drive prices down. Um, what else can we do? How about if um, doctors and hospitals are required to take cash. There's a lot of places they just won't take cash or they provide such astronomical pricing for cash that it makes no sense. I mean, right now, hospitals are charging like $800 for something that only costs a dollar. I mean, we hear these outrageous examples of, you know, $2 for an aspirin pill. I'm sorry, like $800 for an aspirin pill that normally should only cost $2 or $1 or 50 cents. And it's because of the distortion that comes along with the regulations, that comes along with the insurance industry, that cash payment is so largely inflated so they can create discount pricing for insurance providers that get the price back down to somewhat of a reality. But if we would empower 
companies like healthcare providers to take cash, then we're going to see cases that we see, like, for example, in, in Oklahoma, there's a surgical center that takes cash and they literally have a price list, just like if you go into a restaurant and get a menu and it'll show every particular procedure and a price and they only take cash. For them, it's a huge win because they um, uh, are relieved of all of the regulatory burden and administration of all the paperwork and everything associated with insurance requirements, Medicare requirements, et cetera. But the patient also wins as well because they now get to see far lower prices. Um, so I think having this case where so-called routine health care can be handled by cash is going to make pricing less expensive. It's going to increase access for more people. And then we just re- we use insurance for what it's supposed to be for, risk management, which ultimately means using insurance to cover catastrophic cases. Like if you get cancer, if you have heart disease, if you get hit by a bus, that's what insurance is for. That It's not really intended to pay for flu shots and common cold remedies. Um, that's when we start using insurance for those kinds of things, it just inflates the price for everybody. Um, what else can we do? And I mentioned this earlier with Medicare Part D, which was implemented when Bush was president in, I think it was implemented in 01 or 02. The import medicine from Canada, from Mexico, from other countries, oftentimes is banned. Now, th- keep in mind, this is, this is medicine that has been either made in the United States and then shipped to a foreign country, and then it can't be imported back into the United States. Or there are cases where it's, it's, the technology was designed in the United States. The, the medicine itself may have been created in a foreign country, but it's ultimately b- based on the patents, the formulas of the U.S. company that originally built it. Um, and then those, those medicines, which are dramatically less expensive, are banned from import. Now, we see people still do this today. You know, we're here in, in, in San Diego area. They still go down into Tijuana to buy medicine far, far less expensive. And they will, in some cases, they can import it legally. In other cases, they literally smuggle it back into the United States. You know, I mean, I, I have family members that have done this where they've gone down because the medicine here in the United States, even with insurance, is so dramatically more expensive. You can buy it for pennies on the dollar in Mexico, and it's the same medicine. So if we're able to open up markets, to open up the import of medicine from foreign countries, medicine that is already approved by the FDA, it's safe. Um, in many cases, it's actually even made in the United States at a, at a manufacturing facility here. Those products should be imported, and we will see a dramatic lowering of pricing. But of course, the government won't allow that because the government is set up uh, through to have this excessive regulatory state that is because of the lobbyists, the corporate influences. That's what all these regulations largely do is they rig the market to protect those corporate influences um, from competition. You know, they either want to ban competition or make competition very difficult or very expensive. It just rigs the market. Um, so we need to, rather than creating these new healthcare laws, if we can just 
unwind and unravel all the crazy healthcare laws that have been implemented by the federal government. And even at the state level, we're going to see a more opening up of the marketplace. We're going to see a more competitive environment and we're going to see prices lower. And in this particular case for medicine, um, what else can be done? Um, you know, one other thing, and this is a, an issue that I think is an area that I'm willing to compromise on. Now, granted, compromise, like, like as though I'm one of the decision makers. I'm not. I'm a guy with a podcast. But let's just, for the sake of discussion, assume that I was the senator from California and I was negotiating a plan. Um, I would be open to a public option as only as a compromise um, because I don't agree with single payer with um, – I don't agree with uh, this notion of universal Medicare for all, because what it ultimately does is it makes a government a monopoly. The government then has a monopoly on the healthcare insurance industry. I mean, single payer, right? Single payer, single, mono, mono payer, monopoly. All right. So single payer is a monopoly and we should be concerned about monopolies, particularly when Competition is either illegal or competition, you know, some people say a single payer really isn't a monopoly because you can buy added premium insurance tiers above what you would normally get from the government. But you're still it's still a monopoly in terms of the fact you're still forced to pay for it, um, which is different than so-called monopolies in the private sector where you're not required by law to buy it. Um, in this particular case, with single payer, you would be required by law to buy it. It would be a real deal monopoly enforced by a gun, enforced by the government. Because if you don't pay your taxes, eventually someone's going to show up at your door. Um, so because I don't support single payer Medicare for all, I am willing to compromise and consider the idea of a public option. Because I've always said to some of my progressive friends – if the Medicare for all solution, this government health care solution is so wonderful, if it really does provide the lowest possible prices for the most people, then I say put it into the public option category and then let people choose. Let people choose amongst all the other private options, including, med including the, the public option. And if the public option is so superior, then people will just naturally flock to it. I'm supportive of that as long as that that revenue source and expenses live in Al Gore's lockbox. In other words, they are self-contained, that the revenue that comes from public option never um, is less than the expenses that go out the door. So in other words, if the public option ends up having to be subsidized by tax dollars from other parts of the budget, then I wouldn't support it at all. But if the public option was fully and only exclusively funded by the revenues that come in through people choosing to put their money into the public option, then I, I you know, I, I have a philosophical disagreement with it, but I'm willing to compromise with it at a political level. So I think that might be something that can be done because right now, the way the, the current status quo is with our healthcare in, uh, industry, it's insane. Things are so distorted, so out of control, so expensive, unnecessarily, for all the reasons I've already listed, um, that providing a public option may very well lower the price for people. Those are things that we can do. What else can be done? 
hey, um, how about with our veterans? Now, a lot of times our veterans, they get their health care needs at the local VA. Um, but why not get, make their health care essentially a voucher that they can get health care, not just at a VA, but they can go to a, 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 a private hospital, a, a nonprofit hospital. Here in San Diego, they could go to Scripps or Kaiser or Sharp Healthcare, and that veteran can get healthcare from a wide variety of options. In some cases, that healthcare, um, their copay might be less. In some cases, it might be more convenient for them to get healthcare at those other options. So, I mean, to me, the healthcare for veterans should be similar to a GI Bill in my opinion, you know, um, because the GI Bill, you know, is is essentially a voucher. That's where um, veterans are given a voucher to attend a university of their choice, you know, assuming provided they can be accepted and the, the university chooses them. And, and we'll leave all jokes aside with the whole college admission scandal for now. Um, but the GI Bill works very nicely um, as from a voucher perspective, but we for the, our veterans, we give them the complete opposite with healthcare. We say rather than being able to choose from all the different healthcare options that are available to you, we say only get your healthcare at a VA. Well, to me, that's wrong. I, I think we should be expanding that. Now, are there some cases where veterans might get some health care outside the VA? Well, they might. It kind of depends on if they have additional insurance through a, through a um, uh, through an employer, or maybe they're already on Medicare, and so they can, you know, pursue those options. But in some cases, they're most, some cases, veterans are only getting their health care from the VA. Why not expand that? Again, create a more competitive environment um, so they can pursue options that are less costly to them that have lower co-pays for them. So, so many things that can be done in healthcare that we can, we can, we can lower the prices. We can provide more access. And ultimately, the way we do it is by providing more liberty. Okay. Again, this podcast is about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So if we can unwind government regulations that force people to, um, to, uh, you know, buy corporate insurance, that's going to lower the prices. I mean, think about what, what, think about what Obamacare really is. Obamacare, as I said, was, is a rigged system that benefits corporations, which should be the opposite of what progressives stand for. Because what Obamacare did in the very beginning, it had a mandate. Everyone had to buy the insurance. And if they didn't, they were penalized. You know, they called it a tax, but ultimately they were penalized if they didn't buy something from a corporation. I mean, think about that. Can you imagine if we didn't buy something from Walmart or Costco that we would get penalized by the government? That's insane. So Obamacare had that mandate. Obamacare also subsidized insurance companies that were losing money. Now, I don't think they they did it for the full term, but for the first few years that Obamacare was implemented, insurance companies were getting subsidies, were getting corporate welfare off the backs of hardworking Americans and the taxes that they pay to ensure that their bottom lines remain profitable. That, to me, is utterly immoral um, for taxpayers to be forced to pay so corporations can avoid losses. That's wrong. I mean, it's just immoral. Obamacare did that. The third thing that Obamacare did to rig the system for corporations is they got a free e-commerce system. This was the the Obamacare exchanges that they told everyone, go here, and and it created a simplified way for people to buy health care. But 
Imagine if you have a company and you have a very complex set of products and service offerings and you ask taxpayers to pay for your private company's e-commerce system. Well, that's what that's what the healthcare industry got with the Obamacare exchanges. So they had mandated forced corporatism. You had to pay. You had to participate. You had to buy from corporations. You had to. Um, pay taxes to subsidize those corporations, and you had to pay taxes to fund their free e-commerce system. So, and then on top of all of it, the Affordable Care Act made healthcare less affordable because pricing went up. Uh, the overall cost of healthcare went up, and the individuals were paying more for healthcare. Um, by and large, there's some exceptions, but for many people, their prices went up. So, this is again, it was a distortion of the market that ends up rigging the system because you don't, you know, genuine um, angels did not write the Affordable Care Act. That was largely written by lobbyists and getting their buy-in to the system. Um, that's what the politicians did. The regulators did. They worked with the healthcare industry and built a system that benefited them with a couple of spiffs that they could use to, um, you know, kind of dangle as bait to voters to support their politicians. Um, but if the, ultimately what's happening is whether it's through the Affordable Care Act or Medicare Part D, which we've already talked about, or a variety of other regulations that have distorted the system, rigged the system to benefit the healthcare industry, to benefit healthcare insurance providers and increase the cost to for regular folks like us. But if we can reorient the system and if we can say insurance needs to be a risk management tool, which is what insurance is supposed to be, and utilize insurance for catastrophic cases like cancer, leukemia, you know, heart disease, you know, having a, an accident where you're, you know, you're physically damaged, using insurance for that makes sense. You know, something that a regular person cannot afford out of pocket, all right? Um, but for routine healthcare needs, we should create a marketplace with transparent pricing, largely without the influence of the insurance industry where people are paying cash, just like you do when you do business with virtually anybody else in the marketplace. Um, when we're paying cash in a competitive environment, prices are either gonna go down or they're gonna be um, dampened they're going to it's going to prevent them from spiking as much as they could um, if the system isn't rigged through the coercion of government. So that's how we should approach it, in my opinion. More liberty, more liberty so we can have more control over our own life and ultimately pursue our own happiness. OK, um, hey, I, I welcome feedback. I know that this particular topic, healthcare, gets everyone that gets everyone's hair on fire. People get fired up. They um, People are very passionate about this issue. Um, it's funny. I, I look at my Facebook feed, and I enjoy engaging with others on political conversations. My Facebook feed is loaded with um, uh, progressives, and it's loaded with people that are supporters of Trump. It's like I've got the yin and the yang, <laughs> um, and they're in my Facebook feed. And I always kind of en enjoy engaging with them. They all have very different opinions um, and often very different than my own. But I encourage feedback. I encourage 
um, criticism. Um, I encourage you, if you feel passionate about these issues, to join me here in a podcast episode on the John Riley Project, and we could talk about healthcare. I'd love to hear your stories. Maybe you've had a particular um, event um, and the healthcare industry really, you know, did you harm, screwed you over. I'd love to hear those stories and I'd love to hear why and what happened. And if you're willing to share, I, I would love for you to share your story um, and we can talk about it. And I think we can learn a lot from each other. So those the invitations are always on the table. If you're politically inclined and like to debate the issues here in a podcast episode, or if you had a personal experience, both positive or negative with the health your industry, I welcome you to join me. What else? Um, let's talk a little bit. Just, I'm going to just do a quick hitting little thing here with some of our um, already announced or soon to be announced 2020 presidential candidates because they're always in the news and the media is covering them. They're, CNN's having their town halls with most of them. Um, you know, we've already talked about um, Howard Schultz. I did a whole episode on Howard Schultz. I thought he's an interesting character because he's running as an independent. And, um, you know, some of his policies I like, some of them I don't like. In fact, just about every candidate out there, I like a little bit of them and I don't like a little bit of them. Often I don't like a lot of them. Um, but Howard Schultz to me is interesting just because he's saying, you know, the heck with the two-party system. I'm running as an independent because most Americans are independent. And that's true. There are more independents than there are Republicans, and there are more independents than there are Democrats. He's trying to bring the two sides together. He's trying to unify where Trump and a lot of our progressive candidates are doing the opposite. They're trying to divide. They're trying to separate, um, which I think is a problem. Um, I don't agree with a lot of Schultz's ideas, but I do tip my hat to him for trying to break the Republican Democratic duopoly because that's what it is. But, you know, the, the Democrats are fiercely against Schultz because, number one, they feel scorned because Schultz had historically always been a Democrat. But secondly, they think that he's going to peel off enough Democratic votes that's going to enable Trump to win in 2020, which is the Democrats' worst nightmare. Um, and really... That's what we get into. You, you see a lot of these candidates that are running and they have supporters. But I think a lot of the supporters or the people that are voting are more, I guess, engaged, more um, fueled by preventing the other side from winning than they are from having their guy win. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing with all the opposition that comes to Schultz. But let's talk about a couple other guys. How about Bernie Sanders? Now, here, here's a, he's an interesting character. Obviously had a great run in 2016. There are a lot of very loyal Bernie Sanders followers. I have a number of close friends that are very loyal Bernie guys. Um, and they felt like, oh, my God, here's a guy that's finally saying what I've always wanted. You know, they want to have, you know, this system that is a lot like the Scandinavian system where there is um, redistribution. And some people call that socialism. Some people call it social democracy. Some people call it democratic socialism. Um, but what's interesting is, is, is the, the Bernie bros, they're always looking to Scandinavia as their model. But often I wonder, is that really what you mean? I mean, because there's a lot to the Scandinavian model that don't match up with the things that the Bernie Sanders supporters claim to want. Like, for example, in Sweden, which is one of the Scandinavian countries that is always looked upon as a model for um, democratic socialism, they support school vouchers. They allow 
regular people to to use um, to have it as an allocated amount of their tax dollars to be able to spend at any school they choose whether it be their local public school or a private school, et cetera, that gives, that empowers parents and empowers students to choose the best school that meets the needs of their child. Um, I am a giant supporter of school vouchers, um, but I know most Bernie supporters are strongly against it, um, yet they claim they want to model much of it off the Scandinavian system. I wonder. Um, the Scandinavian system also their tax model is not nearly as progressive as the American tax model is. I mean, remember um, in 20 – when did Romney run? 2012, I think, when Mitt Romney ran. And remember he made that um, offhand remark about the 47 percent. Um, and it was a remark in a fundraising uh, meeting um, with all Republican donors. And he said – 47% of the people are never going to vote for me because they don't pay taxes. Um, and they're going to vote for Obama no matter what. Now, first of all, he's largely right. <laughs> um, secondly, obviously, a lot of uh, you know liberals, Democrats, progressives took great offense to that uh, because they thought it was just him, you know, again, going after the money and the big donors. Um, but – it's true that um, a large percentage, almost 50 percent of, of American federal tax filers pay no federal – they no net federal income tax. They might have some money taken out of their checks, but they get a refund. In a lot of cases, they break even. With the earned income tax credits, some people get more um, in, in tax credits than they actually pay in taxes. Um, so our system is very progressive, um, where the rich pay extraordinarily high rates, um, the middle class pay you know, still pay pretty high rates and the poor um, largely pay nothing in federal income tax. But in Scandinavian nations, it's not as progressive. Um, so you find that income tax rates um, for the poor and for the middle class are significantly higher than exist in the United States, to, not to mention the, the VAT taxes, the value added taxes that are built into the products that are purchased. You know, the value added taxes are the taxes that are paid at every tier of distribution. So manufacturers pay a tax, distributors pay a tax, retailers pay a tax, et cetera. And that price is bundled into the products that the poor and the middle class pay. Gas taxes are dramatically higher in Scandinavian, which also affect the poor and the middle class. So Bernie, <laughs> is that what you want? Because I know you want to tax the rich more. But in Scandinavia, they also tax the middle class and the poor a lot more. Um, is that really what you want? Um, also in Scandinavia, ironically, the business um, environment, the economy is less regulated than in the United States, which often goes contrary to um, stereotypes. If you look at the World Economic Freedom Index um, and you look at the countries that have the lowest regulations, that have the most freedom for businesses to, to do business with um, not only less regulations, but less licensing, less taxes, et cetera, Denmark – Sweden, Finland, Norway often rank a lot better in the world of economic freedom for businesses. But our friends that support Bernie want more regulation on businesses in America. 
So do you really support the Scandinavian model? I don't know. So Sweden in particular, but Scandinavia in general, used to be a lot more socialist in the 70s and 80s. And they have been more and more embracing capitalism um, beyond what is generally considered acceptable to progressives in the United States. Now, besides um, the vouchers for schools, the phone systems have used to be um, nationalized. Now they're privately owned. The Copenhagen Airport um, here, airports are generally, you know, public entities. The Copenhagen Airport is privatized. Railroads are privatized. Where in America, we're doing the opposite. Amtrak is largely nationalized in the United States. In Scandinavia, they're privatizing their railroads. Even their pension system, which we call Social Security in the United States, they call it a pension there. In Sweden, the pension system is partially privatized. Individuals can choose to invest portions of their own pension or their own social security in private investment vehicles, something that um, progressives would never, ever accept in the United States under any circumstances. So I wonder if the Bernie bros really do um, um, embrace the Scandinavian model. I question it. Um, but the big one is Medicare for all. And we've talked about that already. You know, um, in my opinion, Medicare for all is single payer, single payer, mono payer. It's a monopoly. Um, and I certainly would not want the federal government with monopoly powers managing the health care insurance model with President Trump at the top of the pyramid because – the healthcare um, system, if it were a universal healthcare, single payer, Medicare for all, that is implemented and executed within the executive branch of government, which is rightfully where where it should go if it does exist. Um, that means that in the end, the president of the United States, as the chief executive, would have great influence over that system, and I think um, that's concerning. That's the reason. One of the reasons I so greatly embrace free markets is because I don't trust other entities to have such dramatic control over a marketplace. Um, I want to make sure that I have other choices. Um, and if we have a single payer system, well, then everyone has to pay. You don't have a choice at that point. Um, so I wouldn't support um, Medicare for all under those circumstances. So Bernie, Bernie bro, bros, I know you guys love him. Um, a lot of Bernie uh, supporters were supportive of him in 2016. They think he has more credibility, more name awareness, better brand value in the 2020 cycle. And I think they're right. I think he does. Um, is he going to win? Can you imagine seeing Trump and Bernie on stage in a debate? Uh, that would be that would be must watch TV for sure. Um, but I honestly think that um, you know I think Bernie would get steamrolled by Trump. I, I think Trump is a unique figure on the stage. And again, I'm not a supporter of Trump at all, um, but I know that in a debate he's good um, and he will go in the gutter. Um, and sometimes he'll win that argument and he'll drag people into the gutter with him, which is the last thing that you want to do. Well, anyways, um, what about some of these other um, candidates? Kamala Harris, um, you know, when she made her big announcement about a month or two ago, you know, she had that big rally in Oakland and, and um, you know, I'll give her credit. You know, she had a re- very well-organized announcement, well-organized rollout. Um, I don't support her, um, largely for a lot of the policies that she's behind. You know, she's a former prosecutor. Uh, She was the attorney general of the state of California um, and the attorney general in the um, 
or excuse me, not the attorney general, but the DA in uh, the city of San Francisco. And she has made flippant remarks about arresting parents whose children are truant. Um, She has prosecuted people in this horrible, immoral war on drugs and locked people up in prison for, you know, petty crimes, for nonviolent crimes. And and she's proud of herself for it. Um, I don't think we should have a prosecutor in the White House. I want to see a unifier in the White House, a person that expands in uh, freedom, empowers people, protects individual rights, not someone that's looking to drag people into prison. And that's what her background has been. The other objection I have to Kamala Harris, and this is not to her specifically, but it's about, about the media response to her. Um, when she made her announcement, it was it was the main message that the media were were propagating was all about identity politics. They were saying, look, she's a woman. Look, she's black. Um, And I'm thinking that shouldn't matter. Um, What matters are the policies you put forward. I mean, speaking for myself, I don't care what a person's color is. I don't care what their gender is. I would gladly support a black female that supported the policies that I like. But I wouldn't support one that's, that pushes policies that I disagree with. Um, so um, I just think that identity politics I always claim is a scourge. It just it's, – it's, it's destroying um, – what uh, our United States? It's it's creating this us versus them mentality. You know, it's it's um, all these race biases and white privilege and people wagging their fingers. It's us versus them with the the immigrants from Mexico and it's just you know gender, nationality, um, religion, uh, race. Everyone is divided into their little subgroups, their subsets, and we're losing the focus on the individual. And I think this is damaging. And so when I see candidates that willingly or unwillingly are all about identity politics, that is a big turnoff to me. Um, So Kamala Harris, I know she's got great support within the Democratic Party, uh, within the media. Um, I'm concerned about her as a candidate. Um, Elizabeth Warren, another very interesting person. Now, we'll set aside the whole American Indian thing, which is a friggin' cluster. Um, she never should have brought that up. That again, more identity politics. She ended up, you know, you know, basically uh, Trump, you know, lashed her on that. Ends up she's like one one thousandth of an American Indian DNA. Uh, it, the whole thing is just stupid. Um, but let's talk about policies. Um, one of the things that um, Elizabeth Warren is talking about on the campaign trail is ending the Electoral College. And I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking right on. I agree with that. The, um, the Electoral College in many ways is a perversion, the way this system works. Now, before I break that down, let me just say this. You see people right now, the Democrats want to get rid of the um, Electoral College. The Republicans want to keep it. And why? Well, because it supports their candidates, right? Republicans love it because it allows Republicans to win even if they lose the, the, um, the, the popular vote. The Democrats love it because they know they're going to win more elections if it was just based strictly on a popular vote. So for them, getting rid of the Electoral College is largely about maintaining power. Um, I'm for getting rid of the Electoral College is because I think I think it's immoral in a lot of ways. It's, it disenfranchises people. Now, I live in California. California is a stone-cold lock to give all of its Electoral College votes to the Democratic candidate. 
I mean, I think the last time the Republicans won California might have been in, I'm going to guess here, maybe 84 when Reagan was president, maybe 88, but um, certainly in 84 they did. Um, But those days are long, long gone. I mean, that was, I'm dating myself here. That's what, 35 years ago? Oh my gosh. Um, So it doesn't matter who I vote for. I can vote for the Republican candidate, the Democratic candidate, the Green candidate, the Libertarian candidate. I can write someone in. In the end, my vote doesn't matter because I know the state of California is going to give all of its votes to the Democratic candidate. So largely my vote is... I'm disenfranchised to a degree. So I think this is another case of where the system is rigged for the Republicans and the Democrats. Now, I generally, I'm an independent voter. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. For a good portion of my adult life, I have been a member of the Libertarian Party. Um, I'm no longer a member of that party. That's a whole other conversation we could have. Um, But I am very supportive of Libertarian policies. Um, And I know that the system, you know, with you have... All of the 50 states, 48 of them are winner-take-all states. So, it, again, it doesn't matter who you vote for. In the end, you know, if you're on the losing side, your vote doesn't count because 100% of the electoral college votes are given to the winner of that state. Now, two states, Maine and Nebraska, I'll give them credit. They, they apportion their electoral college votes. So – and I'm going to make up some numbers here. I'm not sure if I'm exactly right, but I think Nebraska has five electoral college votes. So if the the, the candidate that wins Nebraska, they don't get 100% of the, of the electoral college votes. Let's say 60% of the co- votes went to the Republican candidate and 40% went to the Democratic candidate. Then of those five, they'll give three electoral college votes to the Republican and two electoral college votes to the Democrat. That makes a lot more sense. I mean, it's still not perfect. It still disenfranchises people, but it's far, far better than a winner-take-all at a state level. Um, so I, I'm a believer that we should change the way our voting is done for the president because it does create these distortions where the popular vote isn't, isn't um, embraced. It disenfranchises voters. It rigs a system. I mean, imagine, you, you notice how... Um, Presidential candidates almost never um, um, are in California to campaign. Now, granted, I know Bernie was just here in San Diego. That's the exception. We all know that most candidates are rarely in California. They spend their time in the swing states because they know that California is going to win no matter I mean, excuse me, California is going to go Democrat no matter what. So for the most part, politicians come to California for fundraising not for campaign rallies. The campaign rallies are usually in places like Florida, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, because those are the swing states. So the system is rigged where Republicans um, and Democratic candidates can put certain states sort of like in their back pocket. They're, they're locked and loaded. They're, they're automatics for them. Um, that rigs the system for the two parties and further diminishes the influence of independent candidates like Howard Schultz and of, um, uh, and of uh, uh, third party candidates. So, um, so I, I do agree with Elizabeth Warren that the current electoral system is not, is not good. Um, I think the electoral college system, the way that I understand it, when it was originally built was, you know, back in a day when the federal government itself was very, very small and the states were almost like sovereign 
entities in and of themselves. And this was a the Electoral College was put into place to prevent one state from having too much power over another. And so what, what ended up happening, it was a compromise that was put forward. So lower populated states, ironically, slave states, were going to have more power in that election process. And that's largely today why we have the Electoral College that typically tilts more towards conservatives than it does for liberals. Um, so I do think the system is, needs reform. I would recommend that it be reformed with a ranked choice voting system. Um, and this in it, ranked choice should be a separate podcast, but I'll just give you the highlights here. In a ranked choice system, imagine, okay, we'll use the 2000 election as the example, because um, in the 2000 election, there was Bush and there was Gore and there was Nader. Now, there were other third parties, but those were the three guys that were involved. Now, a lot of progressives did not like um, Gore. I mean, Gore was a war hawk in the 80s. He wasn't a very progressive candidate, but they loved Nader. A lot of progressives loved Nader for what he represented and the policies he put forward. But some people said, I'm not going to vote for Nader. That's a wasted vote. So I'm going to compromise and vote for Gore. I'm going to vote for a guy that I don't really want, but I want him. I, I definitely, speaking for progressives, I definitely don't want Bush in 2000. I want Gore in 2000. And so they vote for Gore because they think they're, and they compromise their own values, uh, vote for someone they don't really want, but they just want to keep the bad guy out. Um, but some voters in Florida voted for Nader. They said, screw it. I mean, I, I really don't like Gore either, and I'm going to vote for who I want. And they ended up voting for Nader. And more voters voted for Nader than the difference between Gore and Bush in that election. And if all those voters had voted for Gore, Gore probably would have won Florida. And so some people blame Nader for throwing the election. I don't blame Nader at all. Nader offered a great um, um, option for a lot of voters. What I do blame is the system uh, because the system is set up where um, uh, because of people not voting for what they want, they really vote against what they don't want. Ranked choice voting or instant runoff voting would change that. So in that scenario, let's say you were a progressive, you could say, I want Nader as my first choice. Gore is my second choice. Any number of third party candidates as your third or fourth choice, including write in of Mickey Mouse. And then the ninth choice, the last choice is George Bush. A progressive could have put that ballot forward in 2000. Their, their first place votes would have gone to Nader. If Nader didn't win the election, then their vote would revert to the second place choice, which in this case would have been Gore. And so in an instant runoff or, or ranked choice voting system, people can vote for what they want and still have that defensive um, you know, vote in the second or third slot to keep the worst choice from winning. I think that would dramatically transform the system unrig the system that right now is so focused on Republicans and Democrats, it would allow independents and third parties to have more equal footing. And I think it would transform our election process to be so much more empowering for voters and ultimately a lot more healthy. So uh, Elizabeth Warren, I agree. The, the Electoral College has problems. Um, Re, just simply removing and going to a popular vote, I don't think is the right reform um, because people would still be voting mostly against what they don't want. I mean, that's what happened in 2016. I mean, how many people were enthusiastically 
for Hillary or enthusiastically for Trump. Not that many. I mean, sure, they existed, but most people that were voting really were against Hillary or really were against Trump. So they voted for the opposite um, and they end up compromising. That's why so many people felt terrible about the 2016 election. They didn't like either one of them and they didn't vote at all. And that's partly why Trump won in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, because the vote turnout was so low. Um, so imagine if we had instant runoff voting, we could have more people voting and more people voting is a good thing. Um, so I'm for instant runoff. So again, with Elizabeth Warren, um, she's pushing the elect, getting rid of the electoral college and she's on to something there. The other thing that she's been talking about is breaking up Amazon and breaking up Facebook. And again, this is the typical sort of progressive, um, uh, message of, of being against corporations that have too much power, being against so-called monopolies. Now, it's interesting that they are against monopolies with corporations, but they support monopolies as long as the government is the monopoly, like in the case of, say, single-payer health care, or even some progressives. I'm not sure if Elizabeth Warren believes this, but some progressives want to nationalize industries. They want to nationalize the oil industry, like Finland has done and how Alaska has done, and provide dividends to people. Um, but anyway, I'm on a, a little bit of a tangent. Warren really wants to break up Amazon. Now, Amazon, let's keep in mind, let's get real here for a minute. Amazon represents 5% of the entire retail marketplace, 5%. People think that Amazon is massive and is just running roughshod over the whole retail marketplace. Well, yeah, they're big and yeah, they're growing. But they only represent 5% of the total retail market. We still have how many Walmarts exist, Costco's, and countless, um, you know, retailers, clothing stores. Um, I mean, everything. I mean, there's home improvement stores, bicycle stores, consumer electronics stores, Best Buys. I mean, it goes on and on. We have a ton of retail. Um, so Amazon is not a retail monopoly. Now, in the world of e-commerce... Yeah, Amazon has about 50% market share, which is a lot. It's not a monopoly. Still have a lot of other choices. You can still buy at Walmart. You can still buy at Home Depot. You can still buy things at eBay. There's a lot of other places where you can buy product other than Amazon. But there's this rush to break them up. Now, that whole Amazon thing that happened in New York City, where the city government was offering to give them all these tax breaks and these special favors, if they would just pretty please move their corporate headquarters or their second corporate headquarters to New York, they would get all these benefits. And people were outraged, rightfully so. But they were outraged at Amazon. <laughs> I'm thinking, Amazon's just playing the game. Amazon's just trying to get the best deal you know, trying to maximize their position. I don't blame people for that. The problem are the government officials that are handing out all these special favors. The government needs to treat people equally, equally under the law, not special favors for Amazon and no special favors for mom and pop. We need to have equality under the law. So her, her focus was on the wrong entity. In my opinion, the problem there was the city government, not Amazon. Now, Amazon's got their issues. Um, Amazon is no angel themselves, but Amazon shouldn't be broken up. Um, and then even with Facebook, she wants to break up Facebook as well. And I'm thinking, come on. I mean, yeah, Facebook is powerful. Um, Facebook has its issues. 
and we can we can debate those issues. But Facebook is not the is, does not have a monopoly on social media. I mean, th- there's YouTube is massive. I'm talking right now on YouTube. Um, YouTube is not owned by Facebook. YouTube's part of Google. Um, but there's all kinds. I mean, Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat. There's a million of other. Um, now, granted, Instagram is part of Facebook. Okay, <laughs> I'll reel that one back a little bit. But there's a lot of other social media that's out there. I mean, and, and so many more that I'm not even talking about. Um, so breaking up Facebook, come on, you know, um, you know, are there problems with Facebook? Yeah. Um, are there things that Facebook should be held accountable for? Yeah, possibly, but breaking them up? Come on. No, 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 no. That's not where we need to be going with this. So, I mean, to me, Elizabeth Warren, she's an interesting character. I don't think she has a chance in hell because if by any stretch of the imagination she were to win the Democratic nomination, Trump would destroy her on the stage um, in the the, the national debates. But I still don't think she's going to win because a lot of the things that she represents are being co-opted by other candidates. Um, I think Bernie has a lot more credibility in the world of progressives than Elizabeth Warren does. So I think at some point she's going to fade away. who else? Joe Biden. I mean, a lot of people think if he enters, and you know he will enter, he's already kind of hinted at that, um, he'll be formidable. But I mean, to me, Joe Biden's like a cartoon character in a lot of ways. Um, he's like everybody's like favorite uncle. You know, you love Joe. and uh, But I mean, he's made terrible, bigoted, racist, racist remarks that I think are going to come back to haunt him. Um, he's been a very unsuccessful candidate for president the previous times he ran. You know, he ran in 1988. And he ran again in 2008. Um, He's a likable guy um, in some ways, but it's just going to be more Obama. And, um, you know, more like we talk about more Obamacare. We'll be going back to that kind of a model, more of that sort of corporatist Democratic model, which I think is a problem. Um, I think these are Democrats that like to say they're progressive, but really they're in bed with corporations. And I think that's what Joe Biden would largely be. How about Pete Buttigieg? I think I'm saying his name right. This guy, I like him. Um, This is Mayor Pete. He's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. This guy, I mean, I've seen him in interviews. I've heard him on radio interviews. He's He's 37 years old. He's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He's... He's smart. You know, he's a Rhodes Scholar. Um, He's down to earth. He answers questions directly. Um, Now, he's largely a supporter of the Green New Deal, and he's been a supporter of Bernie Sanders in the past. From a policy perspective, he's a mixed bag. There are things that I like about him policy-wise, things I dislike about him policy-wise, but I do like him as a man. And I do hope that he has success. It'd be wonderful to see a mayor of a medium-sized city in America actually have some success. So um, Mayor Pete, man, keep going. I'm rooting for you within the Democratic Party uh, primaries. I think you can do a good job. Then there's Bill Weld. Bill Weld is running as in the primaries, or he he will run. He hasn't formally announced. He's um, announced an exploratory committee, but he's running as a Republican in the primaries against Trump. And I'm loving this. I'm loving that Trump can get any sort of a pushback from within the Republican Party. I'd like to see the Republicans sort of take back what Trump has taken from them. Um, Because the Republicans used to be sort of a, a party of 
at least they would say they were a party of small government, less regulations, um, fiscal responsibility, et cetera. Now, granted, they never really were, um, but they at least would play that game to a degree. I like that message. I didn't like the policies. Um, but now the Republican Party has turned into this sort of nationalistic party, um, build a wall, locker up, preventing people from um, uh, travel bans and, you know, this trade war, you know, BS that Trump is doing. So I love seeing a um, Republican jump in and go after Trump. Now, Bill Weld is an interesting character. He's the former two-term governor. Um, of Massachusetts. Um, he is a Republican in a, in a largely Democratic state and was reelected. Um, he, uh, um, his motto, which I think is a great motto, it's a motto that I is right in my wheelhouse. He says his goal is to get the government out of your pocketbook and out of your bedroom. And I'm like, oh, beautiful. Um, that's a nice, succinct way of saying, you know, he's for liberty, you know, so, and that's what we're talking about here in this podcast. We're looking at these situations through the lens of liberty. So Bill Weld, I think, is he going to win? Probably not. Um, can he give enough friction to, to Trump to weaken him? Hopefully. Um, I would love to see a primary debate between Bill Weld and um, and Trump. I think it'd be terrific. Now, Bill Weld, now in 2016, he ran in the Libertarian Party. He was the vice presidential candidate, um, Gary Johnson, the, the presidential candidate. In many ways, Weld outshined Johnson because Weld is sort of like the um, the smart guy in the room. Um, he's, he's witty. He's sharp. He's got good answers. He's got good policies. He's got a good track record. He was um, uh, named by uh, Cato and a couple of other um, organizations as the most fiscally conservative um, governor in the United States when he was the governor back in the 90s. So he did some great things in the state of Massachusetts. So I'm loving seeing Bill Well get into this, and I hope he gives Trump everything he's got, and I know he will. So... And then who else? Um, Beto O'Rourke. You can't talk about this without talking about Beto. Um, I've seen this guy. I mean, he's just loaded with energy. He's got great things to say. And he's young, which is terrific. But it, in many ways, he seems almost like more sizzle than steak. You know, you kind of wonder how much depth is there to this guy. You know, Pete Buttigieg is 37. He's actually younger than Beto. But Mayor Pete has a lot more substance, a lot more gravitas than Beto does. So, um, but, you know, hey, I like the energy. I, I love that the Democratic field is big. I love that the Republican field was really big in 2016. It just makes it more interesting. There's more characters to follow. Um, it's a fun soap opera to be engaged with. And I, I think Beto will, will get a lot of votes. I think he's got a lot of supporters out there and he's already had great success in his fundraising. In many ways, he might overshadow the, the Bernie supporters to a degree. And so it's funny, like I told you, a lot of my friends on social media um, are Bernie supporters, but you see some of them battling it out. There's like a, a scrum match going on within the Democrats. Who's better? Is it Bernie? Is it Beto? Is it Kamala? Is it Biden? You know, and, and they're they're having a knockdown, drag out fight in that group. And I think that's good. I think in the end, they're going to discover their new identity. The Republicans went through that same process, but in my opinion, they went to the dark side when they um, when they uh, nominated Trump, and that's why we're getting so much chaos and so many insane policies right now from Trump, which I've commented on in the past, and I'm happy to go through that again. But 
anyways, um, I just want to share some of my top of mind thoughts on some of those candidates. There's others. There's Booker and Gillibrand and Kobachar, and we can go through them. And I don't know as much about those candidates as they get more involved in the race, as they um, get more support. We'll start hearing more about them. And we're still I mean, the, the debates aren't until I think June. Uh, the Democratic debates. And that's when it's going to get really fun. Um, That's when I'll probably live tweet the debates. I've done that in the past. So um, I'll have fun with that. Um, All right. So uh, what else? Let's, uh, again, shift gears here a little bit. Uh, First of all, I said this before. If you're listening to the John Riley Project, if you're watching, if you like it, thank you. Uh, Share it with a friend. But, you know, maybe what else can you do? Are there things you can do to support us? Yeah, there are. Listen and watch. Refer it to a friend. Engage with us on social media. Like us, follow us on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. On Facebook, I've got, I have my own John Riley page, which, um, but I've got a John Riley Project page on Facebook. That's where I like to have some of the discussion. But I also have that special John Riley Project Insiders Group page. It's a closed group. It's invitation only, or you can ask permission. Join me there. Ask for permission to join that. We'll approve you. Get involved there. Like I told you, I've got some other like mobile podcasts when I'm out on the road. They're like little five or 10 minute things. And I share those in, in the John Riley Project Insiders group. Um, what else can you do? You can go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. If you want to donate, if you want to be a business and sponsor, um, you can do that. You want to join our mailing list, you can do that at the John Riley Project or johnreillyproject.com at our website. So those are things you can do if you'd like to support us. We'd love your support. We're trying to build this. This is episode 39. I've got to do these more frequently. I've been, like I told you, I was out of town all Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I was in recovery mode yesterday. Um, But I really need to be more consistent with this. I'm really going to try uh, because I think the more we can, you know, get this podcast out there, the more we can share. I think the more we can build an audience, the more we can have a really nice conversation and we can all learn from each other. But I'll be back um, definitely later this week for sure. I'm going to do at least one more episode this week. Um, and I'm still experimenting with doing play-by-play um, of Poway High Baseball. I'm gonna, I may do that today if I can just work out a bug with um, some of my live uh, streaming gear that I have. Um, so we'll see. Um, but I do want to close today with a quote, and I want to leave it with a quote from Mayor Pete, Pete Boot Edge. I can't say his name. Pete Boot Edge Edge. That's how you say it, like a boot, like a cowboy boot, and then edge, edge, put edge, edge. Um, So Mayor Pete had a great quote. I looked this one up, and it was consistent with my last podcast, episode 38, about believing in yourself. And this is, again, why I like this guy a lot. And he said, I am not skilled enough or energetic enough to craft a persona. I just have to be who I am and hope people like it. Buttigieg said, per the Chicago Tribune, I think people in our party tie themselves up in pretzels trying to be more electable. Oh, man, isn't that, isn't that true? Uh, but I think people like you or I, sometimes we can tie ourselves up in pretzels trying to be something that we're not. Um, so instead, believe in yourself for who you are. Believe in yourself in reality. And live your own reality. And that's the sweet spot we talked about in episode 38. 
That's the sweet spot that Mayor Pete's talking about. Again, I like Mayor Pete. He's a good guy. I hope he has great success. I hope he he um, makes some noise in the Democratic par- primary, and he already is. So way to go, Mayor Pete. So anyways, that concludes episode 39 of the John Riley Project. I don't know how long I've gone. It's got to be at least an hour. I've been rambling. I've had all this pent up in me. Uh, but thank you. If you made it this far, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you all later. Bye-bye.